Welcome to the OT lifestyle movement. This is for the occupational therapy visionaries and the ones who see things differently. We're moving our profession forward through living and leading a truly holistic lifestyle. Hey, hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the OT lifestyle movement. I'm Rhiannon Crisp, occupational therapist, personal trainer, and founder of otlifestylemovement.com. Today, we are looking at autism through the lens of an autistic OT. This guy is a role model to the autistic community. He is an OT inspiration and a huge advocate for our profession. We're talking with Bill Wong. Bill is an occupational therapist and autistic individual. He is the first occupational therapy practitioner to speak at two TED Talks. Bill has presented and shared his blended perspectives on autism with communities around the globe. He is currently working in academia and nursing facilities. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. So awesome to have you with us today. What I'd like to do is hit the rewind button and learn a little bit about your story and how you came to do the work that you're doing today and where you are. No problem. So take it away. I guess how far back do you want back? That's my question to you. Well, I suppose just give us a bit of an insight and a history to, to what you're doing now and why you're passionate about the things that you're doing at the moment. Okay, so I guess I can go back as far back as for like pre-OT days because I think that's really important. Just like, I think given that I'm an official therapist, so I think it is a little bit, I guess the classic question that people always ask is, why do you choose OT? So I know the background, I'm gonna start pre-OT. So before OT school, I actually, my major was in statistics. The reason why I picked that field at that time in, in undergrad was because math was my strong point, which is a little bit like unusual for an OT, but not uncommon, you know. But then the problem was that I couldn't find a job for a year and a half. So about halfway into my unemployment journey, my parents started to have a conversation with me, like, hey, you know, why are you not having a job, you know? You sh maybe you should start thinking about school again. So we tried a few choices. First, we tried business school because we had the least amount of prerequisites to make up if we were to go there. But then I took the graduate school entrance exam for business school, didn't really work out. And then we tried seminary for a while, but then we explored the options. We understood what we will be in for. I was like, mm, that's not working out either. So OT was actually our third choice. And then how we came to the OT actually was because like, well, at the time it was like, the pay was good, and employment rate was like pretty low. So it was like, hey, you know, if you're making this field, you should have no problem finding a job and you should have not much issues in terms of making a living. I mean, at that time, nobody knew what was the time. And then I think, Couple months we thought like, okay, maybe we could try OT, but then it's like, okay, you know what? Let's go to an orientation at USC. So of course, Australia, you guys have your own USC. 
which is your USC is University of Sunshine Coast. Our USC in terms of OT in the US is University of Southern California. So we were trying to go through the orientation that, that day, like my mom and I, one day. But then we couldn't find a way around to the campus. So we arrived an hour late. So the part that actually my parents and I didn't get to hear about in retrospect was about ADLs and about us and press movement. And all we heard about was about, hey, OT, we should get involved in research. Like, and then heard about the NEVA research, I think for about an hour from the orientation. And then we came away as like, hey, maybe that's my niche in OT, you know? But of course, my parents thought was dead wrong, I was dead wrong, and so were the people who were admitting me that was also dead wrong too. But then again, that at the time that was what I looked on paper because like, hey, I majored that and hey, I met the minimum requirements to get into OT school at USD of all places, you know? So I was like, hey, you know, that maybe research is my niche in OT. But it didn't turn out that way. The reason why I turned it that way is that, well, my first few academic terms in OT, I did not do very well in school. By not very well, it's not, it's not as bad like, oh, I'm on the verge of getting kicked out of school. That is like, I barely was getting by in OT. And then I think it's like, for the first semester, I really struggled in neuroscience and, and, and kinesiology. I really struggled both. And then I think after that, my parents, I mean, my classmates tried to me up. It's like, hey, you know what? Those two classes are over. Maybe you can shine a little bit in some other subjects that you might know better or you might have more confidence in. And then I think as academics grew up, we get, became better, that I thought I was like, hey, maybe I can be an OT. But the problem was I was struggling in placement. I would say I struggled right out of the gate. So to speak. And the first time that I struggled with placements, I remember the feedback I received was like poor eye contact, poor re understanding social cues, does not manage time very well, that kind of stuff. I did not put much talk to it the first time, but then the second placement that came um, like a month later, that was those were very short placements, so those observational placements, you know? I got the same kind of comment. That's one where I get a little concerned. And then I read something from my pediatric textbook like three weeks later. And then I, there was a chapter about how autistic children play. And then I found a table that really fascinated me, that caught my eye because like, wait, I was all that when I was a kid, when I was trying to play with others. So I, when I thought of that, I was like, hey, I brought up my concerns to my mom. And my mom was like, at the time, I was like, eh, yo, you're in OT school places. How can you have autism? How can you think you have that, you know? So I didn't look. I guess that's what the time is like. I listened to my mom and didn't think much of it. But then I think almost seven, eight months later, when I actually failed a placement that really counted, that was actually how I found out my diagnosis of autism. So I think it's almost like, I think, this year is almost the 10th anniversary of my diagnosis, so to speak. Mm. And then in terms of the self-advocacy work, I think this has to go with what happened right after with my diagnosis. The reason why I said that was because uh, 
So, I mean, given that I failed a placement that really matters, and the fact that I was struggling, relatively struggling in school, so I was like, hey, you know, like my parents already spent a lot of money, and I got to give it one last good shot, you know? You know what I mean? So I was like, okay, I got nothing to lose. I got to tell my teachers and then see if they can help me and stuff. But for a year, I couldn't really find somebody in OT who was also autistic. And I remember uh, there was one day after I made a event on Facebook and said, who in OT has autism? And then there was a caregiver from the UK she actually commented on my Facebook and said, hey, why don't you contact this guy? He is, at the time, he is three years in, in into being a mental health OT, and he's autistic. Here's his website. Why don't you reach out to him and see if he responds to you? And sure enough, two to three weeks later, that, that OT actually responded back to me. And after we got to know each other a little bit, I would say we had Skype conversations like once a month for the most part. And that encounter was actually very helpful because like I got to know a story a little bit and I got to find out in terms of like where I was relatively to where he was. Even though of course like UK and US education was a little bit different. The system is a little bit different. But to find out that we were relatively about the same. So that was a that was definitely reassuring, you know. It's like, hey, I'm on the right track, and I should be able to do, do this. Mm. And then I think, as, yeah, go for it. I was just going to say, what an interesting journey to finding out about you, yourself. And I'd love to learn about your response to the diagnosis, if you're open to sharing that with us, because it's such a personal one. I know adults who have felt relief because the diagnosis has confirmed what they already knew. I know adults who have been depressed and overwhelmed. And I also know adults who have been in disbelief and didn't accept the diagnosis. I'd love to know what your response to it was. I think initially there was relief. The reason was because like, okay, I can finally put a name to the struggles to my placement, you know? I think that was my initial reaction. But then I got depressed. I mean, I didn't really face any denial or anything because I was like, I think I had a, had a hunch that it might be true. So therefore, I, I didn't really deny it. But uh, getting over it definitely was just depressed because like, uh, because like, hey, you know, and when from a person, I didn't think I had a disability at the time, and then to the fact that now actually I have a disability for life. So I think the, let's see, how would I say this? I would say like coming to terms that I have a disability, I think that definitely took a few weeks to accept it. And then I think my parents, I know that will be coming, uh, coming up next in terms of reactions. I think my parents at the time, they were, they felt guilty about the diagnosis because like, here I was telling them a few months before that that might be true. And the fact that now that's true, they were like, uh, you know, like, we felt guilty because like, we actually let you fail a placement that actually matters to you. 
So we felt responsible for that happening, you know? So it's like, not only they were very hard on me and stuff in terms of academics and stuff, but this time because like they knew they were part, partly to blame with us. So they actually did not yell at me and stuff, you know? In terms of my classmates, I would say quite a bit were pretty shocked. The reason why they were pretty shocked was because like, here I was not needing any accommodations and then I was spending a year with them for the whole time like doing relatively hanging there with them, like being part of them, they were like, no way, man. It's like, how could you get through to that point without any accommodation? And then like, how could you? How could you? It's like you're so smart as stuff. We just didn't believe it, you know? So I would say my classmates definitely were shocked. And I think my department at the time, I mean some of them, they have a hunch, but they didn't exclusively tell me because of the, I think there's like confidentiality of student records and stuff, so they could not really directly say to me like, hey, go, I think you might have all of them. Go check stuff out, you know? So like, and then I think it was, when I finally found out and told them, they're like, okay, you know, like, hey, now we can be honest with you, of like, some of us did have a hunch that you have all of them, but, Mm. So you were very yeah, open so, about sharing your diagnosis with your friends, your classmates, your teachers. Did you have any hesitation around this or you were open from the start? I think in terms of academically, I got nothing to lose at that point because academically speaking, I mean like in terms of placement and stuff, I could not fail any more placement. So, I mean, like, if I didn't tell them, they were like, hey, you know what? I lost any kind of last chance that I had. So, therefore, from my academic standpoint, I had nothing to lose. And then I think back to the story that when I talked about that British OT that I met online. Uh, so, he told me was that, wow, you were relatively open about your diagnosis. Why is that? And then sodium is like, well, part of it was because like, hey, if I were, I guess it's like an American thing, it's like, if I want to go down in this career failing, you know what? I want to go down swinging, you know? I'm going to give it a legit shot. So that was why I was pretty open on the internet, even after I, coming, after I came into terms of it, it was like, hey, I need as much support as I get. Because like, if this career doesn't work out, then it's like, hey, my parents would spend like $100,000 US for relatively nothing. <laughs> mm. I, I would love to dive into what autism means to you because it obviously means something different to everybody. And I'd love to know what it means to you because I think if we dive into this, it might help explain why you are so open about talking about it. Mm. That's a good point. I think you also asked that in the previous question. So another turning point and sort of shortly after I found out my diagnosis was I attended a student only conference back in 2010. And let's see. So I actually met somebody who used to be my rival in AOTA elections. So we actually ran against each other for a leadership position before. 
but then afterwards, like I was, I was a good sport, so I was like, hey, you know what? Let's be friends, you know. Maybe we someday we actually would work together. And turns out that we are, we are actually gonna be coming up pretty soon, you know. After ten years of life, we actually get a chance to work with each other instead of competing against each other. But anyway, her name is Jacqueline Ford. So just to give you some context of who she is, so.、Uh, She is now a full-time faculty at Florida International University, and she definitely is an OT enthusiast as well. Like she loves to present at OT conferences. I will say, like every conference I go to at AOTA, I would not be surprised to see less than five abstracts under her name at AOTA conference. And I also know that、uh, she is pretty involved in AOTA as well. So she currently is the Volunteer Leadership Development Committee Chair for AOTA. But anyways, like we were actually friends, right? We actually met at that conference. You know, we talked about, and we actually had some one-on-one conversations twice. You know,、uh, the first time I was like, okay, you know, it's nice to meet you and stuff. Like finally put a name to a face and actually get to meet each other in person and stuff. So I didn't have much after that. But then it's like on. On my way home from that conference, it was like Jacqueline actually gave me a pep talk because, like, how that happened was actually serendipitous too. Because, like, I actually goofed on my flight home, so like, I end up had to go back home on a later flight. And then, as I was waiting in the terminal, so I saw Jacqueline passing by, and then after finding out that. She had quite a bit of downtime, so I said, "You know what? I just wanted to talk to her. I guess with both these as big." At that time, Jacqueline did not know me very well, aside from the fact that we used to compete against each other. So I think for the hour and a half, hour hour and a half for the most part, like after I shared my story with her, she actually gave me an hour pep talk. And after that, like when she left for her flight home. I slowly reflect upon it before I got my flight. I was like, "Wow, she she didn't really have to do that, you know." But the fact that she did that and just shows that the kind of leader that she is. At the time, she was a student too, right? To、so、show that it's like, "Hey, she is somebody a very wonderful leader to have her as a friend." To actually like, you know what? That sort of rekindled my passion. And then, of course, over time, I see Jacqueline. Doing a lot of awesome stuff in OT. It's almost like that's an old Gatorade commercial. It's like anything you can do, I can do better with Michael Jordan and Mia Hamm. So like, you know what? Seeing so much success from Jacqueline, I actually wanted to keep up with her. But obviously, there are some stuff that like, you know what? I can't do this. But there are stuff that like, you know what? I, I I'm gonna give it a shot. You know, it's like, hey. You know what? If you're doing this, I'm gonna do this too. So therefore, it's like, in a sense, it's like we have a little friendly rivalry going for almost ten years now, and I think that really helps both of us in the sense. I mean, from my perspective, actually, it's like that really expanded my comfort zone, so to speak, because like I will say this: I saw her in action at the first conference that I met her, and I was like. This is what leaders like, and I realized that hey, I'm not there yet, but you know what? I want to get as close to that as possible. 
So like, and then I realized the common denominator was like, hey, you know what? I got to be public speaking. I got to be better at this. And then I got to find my niche. And well, you know, I was like, hey, my living experience, that's, that's a niche, you know, in AutoZone, even though there's a lot of AutoZone experts out there in OT. So I was like, hey, you know what? If I establish myself in OT in that front in AutoZone, I think I can make my way in that arena. I think I can. So that was what led me to it. Well, you absolutely have, Bill. I would love to know how you describe autism. How would you describe it to someone who doesn't know anything about it? Hmm, that's a tough question. That's a really abstract question. I'll see. For someone like me, I'm very high functioning, so to speak. Although in that community, uh, people don't like the word high functioning or low functioning because it's very stigmatizing. I would say it's like a combination of like issues. I was I was in late maternity with the issues rather than problems, you know? Like it could be sanctuary, it could be social communication, it could be executive function, it could be any of the above. Uh see what else. Yeah. And then of course like the social communication stuff. So it's like people some people they might not like to be in social situations at all. Or some of like, okay, you know, they may have okay, they may be okay one on one, but they may have some troubles like in a group setting, so to speak, you know? And then some I mean, and then it's of course it's not always true. It's like some are extroverts, some are introverts, just like neurotypical people. How would I say this? And then uh let's see, what else? Hmm. I would say it's like I mean sometimes it's like a lot of us they prefer structure, but then of course some of us to be like me is like we actually got used to unstructured environment or go with the flow. I mean of course being an OT, you know, yeah, a lot of times in a fun of our environment, you have to go with the flow, you know. So therefore it's like I mean like a lot of us you can benefit from structure, but and we understand that it's like, hey, in some job environment that is not very possible. And we gotta do we can't just doubt. And then let's see another one. Oh yeah, another one is that um, we might have restricted or repetitive interests, you know, or we might have. I guess like the better way to say this is that there are some of us who are savants in certain areas, you know, that we are really interested in. I guess for me, it's like I'm very lucky that hey, I turn out to be a savant for OT, you know, and like. I really like to know as much about OTs as, can, as I can. And then TEDx, I think that is also a good area to be a savant in because like now actually turn around to actually to let the rest of the OT community know like, hey, you can do this, you can do that in OT, you know what I mean? For TEDx, you know, that's aside from speaking, you know, like maybe you can do something like TED circles or maybe it's like, hey, you can organize a TEDx event. You know, I know that was a time that's like very, I know that people, when people are associated with TED, a lot of people, they associate like, oh, I'm going to go speak and that's it. But when I, people found out that I did more than that, so like, whoa, what the heck is that about? I was like, well, it's, that's, that's my interest now because like, hey, you know, I don't want to speak anymore, but I feel that that community has given a lot to me. So therefore, like, I want to give back, you know? 
So I guess, I, yeah, I know. I'm something all around right now. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's very complex, isn't it? And l like you're explaining now, you can't sum it up in just one sentence because everyone's experience of autism is very different. And I find I could be seeing two kids two autistic kids and they are polar opposites they have very different views and ways of perceiving and interacting with the world I totally agree with that actually I'm going to plug another thing so uh, I actually now am involved in a mentorship program that is for minorities in OT in the US so to speak so one of my mentees is autistic so I think I have interacted with her extensively like a couple times because of the mentorship meetings that we have, you know. So I saw some similarities with her and I also saw some differences with her. I think it's like, it's almost like I try to use myself as a measuring stick to, in terms of where she is now and where she wanted to be. So I started to use myself as a measuring stick to see it's like, hey, you know, it's like how much different is she for me? and how much similarities that she has with me, you know? And then so like definitely took the time to sort of understand her a little bit so that I think it's like, this is a very good partnership because like, hey, you know what? Helping another autistic person will be succeed. I think that was very rewarding. Mm. I'd love to talk about identity first language and person first language because I feel this is something as OTs we need to be aware of. Um, now, I don't know about you, but when I went to university over 10 years ago, I was taught to say a person with autism because the quote unquote diagnosis does not define a person. So we should be saying a person with autism. But what I've found through my work with the autistic adult population is that actually a large majority prefer autistic individual over person with autism. I'd love it if you could share your views on this. That is not very true, actually, because like, I would say if I were to teach a class right now, I would say is you ask what the person prefers. It's almost like with the LGBTQ community, you know, like, it's like in the LGBTQ community, right? It's like you ask for their pronouns, right? So similarly with the autism community, I think it's the same parallel. Like you ask the person what they prefer to be called. I would say it has been a big shift. I mean, like it has begun there that the older community are gradually realizing the that identity first language is probably the, the language that autistic individuals prefer. And I will say this, it probably started in recent America, per se. It started with a presentation from Christy Koenig and Stephen Shore. So Christy Koenig is the department head at NYU, OT department. And then Stephen Shore is a notable autism self-advocate. Just like he is as well known as they like Temple Grandin in the US. Is a pretty big name. I met him a couple times actually. Yeah, and then uh, I think I think that was a pretty big push for this. Although of course over the years that was a push as well by others. But I guess that was a very pronounced push at the AOTA conference for the workshop about this. 
And then uh, earlier this year, AOTA, we actually published a document called the Autism Opportunities Roadmap. So I was one of the co-authors in the document. And then we also invited a couple more autistic OTs who identified themselves on stage. And I, we asked them to actually take a look at the document and provide the feedback on it. And they definitely also agreed that person first language, oh, no, I didn't, sorry, take that part out, take that out. Identity first language is what is first. And I think like, so therefore like that document exclusively is using the identity first language rather than person first language. So mm -hmm. it is getting some momentum in the US, but I know that of course with paradigm shift and stuff, this stuff takes time. Absolutely. And like you said, it is personal. So finding out what that person prefers is really important because that's what's meaningful to them. And that's how we need to be operating. And personally, I had a really challenging time trying to rewire my brain to change my language because it was hardwired into me that if I said autistic, like even that word felt taboo because I felt like I was saying something so tremendously offensive to someone. So I agree with that. I think it's like, yeah, I think it's like, it's not like it was a shift for me as well, because I know that, I mean, like when I started OT school, I was definitely got into the person first language first. And then when I found my diagnosis, everything changes. So I was like, wow. So, okay, like, so I think for me, it's like, I would take more of a neutral stance than say a more, I guess, more extreme stance, so to speak, because I think it's like, at the end of the day, I'm a professional. So therefore it's like, hey, you know, I cannot afford to say, hey, you must use this language. You must use that language. That tone and rule too strong for professionals. I mean, at least from other uh, autistic individuals on Twitter, from IRC, you know, it was like, that tone is too strong and it doesn't really fit me. Even though I agree with it. Yeah, so that's why for me it's like, generally I use a milder tone. Okay. I'd love to know what your tips are for OTs who are working with autistic people or people on the spectrum. What, what are your tips for the OTs out there? You know what? Actually, I like what you guys are doing down down here in Australia. Actually, you guys have done have done really good. I think. Uh, let's see what I would say. Definitely, I think it is important to partner up with autistic individuals in research. I think it's like I think that's one of them. I know that in the past, I think it's like in my early days as a professional, I definitely said it's like, hey, you know what? I need to love with myself in the field, first, you know? So it's like, I need to pay my dues and stuff, but now I have, so it's like, you know what? I don't want to be treated as just a subject anymore, you know? There are some of us who are capable of collaborating in the research, you know? Yeah, so that is something that, I think that's one of them. I think another one would be, I guess, let's see, how would it yeah. Maybe also like inviting some of them to do some guest lectures or in your clinic environment, who knows, maybe you can always partner up with them to actually do like Zoom meetings, like webinars and stuff to talk more about autism. So you can always do that as well. 
Mm. Yeah, that's something to think of. Yeah, right? Yeah, fantastic. Mm. That's great. Yeah, and that's I think I'm really yeah, passionate about belief systems and understanding people's core values. And because we all have our own belief systems, right? Like we all have these, the environment and our background that has shaped who we are today. And it does to some extent guide our practice. But what I've learned over the years is that if we're to be truly holistic as an OT, it's so important that we really understand the uniqueness of the client. So for example, something that I think of a lot and what I've come to learn, learn through talking with autistic adults and doing lots of reading in this area is that the eye contact issue. So we are taught as part of our culture that eye contact is an important part of communication. Um, but for many autistic individuals that I've spoken to, it's really uncomfortable. And they, some even describe it as painful. And they can't communicate when they give eye contact because it's too hard. And if we were to bring our own belief systems in to the picture and say, no, you know, we're working on eye contact because it's an important part of communication, then we're totally missing the point. Um, I would love your view on this in terms of belief systems and understanding um, different cultures. Very interesting. Yeah. So I remember that I think it was like an occupational science class that I learned about this as well. I think they talk about the eye contact piece was almost like, I thought for the one specific word, but they talk about eye contact. It was very important. Uh, yeah. So I think it's like, it's all, yeah. And I think, let's see, what I think, but yeah, even like my training to do teaching, you know, like, you talk about like, oh, you want to make eye contact and stuff. And then I think at that time, the people, I mean, like at my job right now as an academic on the side, you know, I think a lot of people, they're like, wow, how can they navigate this? You know, this is going to be challenging. <laughs> so like, and then I think for me, it's like, I think what I sort of, I guess me, being an OT in a sense and having doing so much so many presentations and stuff. So what I sort of cope with is like, well, you know, I could not be a hundred percent perfect in terms of eye contact, you know, I cannot make consistently eye contact consistent eye contact with somebody, but I would try my best to do as much as stuff as I can, you know. I don't know what the percentage of this, you know, even on today's call, you know, but I think that is like that's something that I know that this is important for me in the profession, you know, in the OT, that is so important, you know, it's like, you do my daily job, and like, sometimes you have to meet a patient to do a new eval, you know, it's like, you gotta be like this, you know, hi, my name is Bill, I'm doing your eval today, it doesn't work like this. So on the side, it doesn't work like this. And then even in the classroom, you know, I gotta be like, oh, here's the point, and stuff, and like, leave my notes and that kind of stuff. It just doesn't work that way. So I definitely understand, but I'm not gonna strive for perfection because like it's for me, it's gonna be very hard. So I think over time, my students will look up, know up front, they're like, oh yeah, Bill's autistic, but Bill's giving a genuine effort to actually speak to us. So therefore it's like, hey, we'll do our best to try our best to understand him, you know? So mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, so the academic job, I think they were very accommodating. And I think that people see beyond the eye contact issues. They realize that, hey, I have a lot to offer to teach the students, you know. So I think even in my department, they realize that, hey, you know, like this, the eye contact issue, it might be a deficit of those. That's like, it's going to be very hard for him. But he has a lot more strength she's going to make up for weaknesses. Mm, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Strengths-based model. Love it. Oh, yeah. Strengths-based models. I think Christy Koenig, we need Don to talk about this all the time in the U.S. And I think that's true. Yeah. yeah, I know. I'm going to sidetrack a little bit in this topic, but that's sort of what I think about. That's why I think in Zoom right now, I guess it's like, let's back to the eye contact issue. Yeah, so we talk about that mentee that I had, you know, T, who is autistic, right? So... One thing that I guess is like she's really trying to work on is like her social confidence. So right now, and actually in these days of Zoom and stuff, so she, one of the things that she is not very confident in is actually turning on her camera on Zoom. So like I know one time I brought her to a testicle by a Canadian that I didn't, I didn't know at first, and like, I didn't know beforehand, and like, she didn't know beforehand either, so we were just going out on a limb. So I turned on my camera, but then she did not turn on her camera. So, and then, and then I sort of like, and then like, a couple weeks later, we actually had a meeting, I sort of talked to her about it, I was like, okay, I totally understand where you're coming from, you know, like, hey, you know, if you're not gonna, like, it's tough because like, hey, this that environment that I brought you to, like, except for me, it's like, the rest of the people, you don't know, period. So therefore it's like, hey, you know, you don't turn on your camera, it's totally fine. Because like, hey, it's like, if that's what makes you comfortable to contribute to the discussion down the road, that's fine. But then I also told her, like, uh, you know, in OT, there was also some stuff that is like, you've got to be comfortable in showing yourself to the world. I say that because I mentioned something that we're going to do together, because that's like, hey, you know, it's like, let's say you are in a leadership position and you are supposed to be in a meeting with people, you know, and everybody is turning their cameras on and you're not, you know? So like, hey, you know, that's what I'm here for. I'm trying to build your confidence. So that's like, once you're done with me, after 12 months, you know, you can be a more confident leader, you know? So therefore it's like, I guess it's like a catch-22 thing. But I think it's like the eye contact stuff. Now I think with the technology in this pandemic that has caused, you know, like, so now it's like, aside from eye contact, now people are choosing like, whether they want to turn on the camera or not. <laughs> That's another thing. Awesome. Thank you so much for all your insights. I feel like, I mean, I've got so many more questions to ask, but we'll wrap it up. But what I feel like I got out of today was that every autistic individual is different. So understanding their unique needs and their values and their belief systems and how they view the world and how they want to um, to be referred to. So thank you so much. And also have a mentor, like have someone who inspires you. It sounds like you have a lot of your own personal mentors who have helped you and supported you along your journey. 
Um, so I think that's a really important point as well. I'm going to head to the three rapid fire questions as we wrap it up. Sure. So number one, in one sentence, how do you describe OT? Well, it's a field that helps people rebuild lives. Love it. Number two, what's one healthy lifestyle habit listeners can implement today? Oh boy, that's a tough one. Hmm. For me, I guess it's like, do your favorite thing, you know? Love it. Number three, if you could only offer one piece of advice to OTs, what would it be? Active listening is very important. Mm, absolutely. So Bill, thank you so much. How can everyone find you or connect with you or find out more about what you're doing? So I guess on Twitter, it's Bill1OT, that's my Twitter. I use that probably more so now than my Facebook. I guess I really adapt to being an internationally connected OT. And I know that a lot of the international OT community, they use Twitter. So that's why I use Twitter for like almost 10 years now also. Oh no, eight years. I've used Twitter for eight years now. So that's sort of what I use. I don't use LinkedIn that much, even though I'm connected people. Yeah. Awesome. And of course my email, right? I guess my email, that would be fine. So my email is billw1628 at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bill, for your time. I will let you get back to work and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Yeah, and who knows? I'm, if the pandemic is over, I'll see you at your conference again. I'm going to plan to head down there in Australia again. Oh, fantastic. So exciting. Thank you so much. That's it, guys. I hope this episode resonated with you. But more importantly, I hope that it inspires you to take action. If you haven't already, come over and join our Facebook group family where we connect and collaborate. You can find us really easy just by searching the OT Lifestyle Movement in Facebook. If you did love this episode, I'd be super grateful if you shared it. You can take a screenshot right now and share it on Instagram or on Facebook so we can connect with more amazing, like-minded, open-minded OTs. The more we share the OT lifestyle movement, the more we can create a ripple effect. And if you do love the podcast, please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review so we can be found more easily. That's it. Go out, create the epic change that you seek in the world because the world is ready for you. Carpe diem, guys. <laughs>